Albert Hubbard was an American writer who, uh, with one of his works, or his more well-known works, was uh, an essay on the Titanic, in which he chronicled uh, the last moments of a number of people on the ship from eyewitness accounts. And one of the stories he told was about department store magnate Isidore Strauss and his wife, Ida. And they were, as the, sink, as the Titanic was sinking, they were offered seats on the life rafts on the lifeboats, and uh, Isidore refused to take the place ahead of other women and children. And here's the astounding thing. His wife, Ida, wouldn't leave the ship without him either. And so they ended up remaining on the ship, arm in arm, and sinking with the Titanic, and dying with the 1500, over 1,500 people that also died on the Titanic. Obviously, uh, Mr. Hubbard was impressed with this couple and their story because he wrote this about the Strausses. Mr. and Mrs. Strauss, I envy you that the legacy of love and loyalty left to your children and grandchildren, the calm courage that was yours all your long and useful career was your possession in death. You knew how to do three great things. You knew how to live, how to love, and how to die. Mr. Hubbard reminds us that ultimately everyone will look death in the eye, but not everyone does it in the same manner. Today we are continuing in our series in Daniel, and we are going to be in chapter 3, so I encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along as I read the first part of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 to, to, to verse 12, and this is what it says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, perfects, prefects, sorry, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all other kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. And there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. An interesting passage that repeats itself quite often. And... Um, as I was reading uh, this passage, three things stood out to me about the image that we're told about. The height, the gold, and the plane. And I'm not sure the last time you whipped out your cubit measuring tape to measure something in cubits, 
so you may not understand fully how large this image was. But basically, this image was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, or if you're a little more into metric, 27 meters tall and 2.7 meters wide. This thing was huge. It was really tall, and it was really skinny. I get this image of a really super tall totem pole uh, to kind of put it into perspective of what it might have looked like. And so you have this tall image, and then you have this image that is covered in gold. And no one knows if it was solid gold or just wrapped in gold, but I don't think it really matters because I think what is important is for us to understand why Nebuchadnezzar was doing this. Maybe he had some thoughts back to chapter 2 and he had this image of his dream about being the gold head and he turned it into a statue. But I think it was even more than that. I think what he was wanting to do is have this entire gold statue so that the, when the sun shone on it and it reflected, everyone would see it and know it. And then, of course, this is set up in a valley. And so it's in the valley, so that means it is the tallest thing there. So it is the focal point. Everyone's eye is drawn to this image, this huge image that he has set up. And, and really what I think he was trying to do is he's trying to set up an artifact for the people. I mean, we even do it these days where we build buildings or we build things, monuments, to help us remind us about special things or help focus us on special things. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago, January 6th, when we saw the news of all the rioters storming the Capitol building in the U.S. And, the, and Americans were really upset that people were doing this. And it had less to do with it, they were storming a building, but it had more to do with what the building represented. The Capitol building for Americans represents the seat of their democracy, this, the, one of the most important things that they hold dear. And I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do with this image. He's trying to create something that will draw the attention of his people and focus him on that. And that's why it talks about all peoples of all language, and he has all his leaders there. He wants them focused in one specific area. And then in verse 5, it tells us that there's this call to worship. And he uses music, and he lays it out. And, and the way it's written, it basically gives you this impression that there was no way anybody would disregard this order. Like, it is written in such a way that over and over again, it's repeated. So that when the music played, when this orchestra sounded, that everyone would fall down and worship this image, this monument, this ob obelisk that was standing there. And of course, verse 6 tells us that there was a consequence if you didn't. You would be put in the fiery furnace. In essence, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, if you refuse to worship this image, then I will offer you as a sacrifice to this image. You got one of two choices. The funny thing is, is as you're reading this, you realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might have got away with not bowing down because it seems Nebuchadnezzar didn't see them fall down on their faces standing there. They just stood there. He didn't see them. And it wasn't until they were ratted out by the astrologers that it's brought to Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And as you read those verses around this ratting out, you realize that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Obviously, there's some court conflict, some court drama. These guys might have wanted uh, the position that these three men held in terms because they were positions of power. There's definitely some uh, hatred against the Jews going on in this moment. But at the end of the day, 
Here you have these people ratting out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, you know, as I was growing up, I always wondered what it would take to become a police state where people ratted each other out. I mean, I thought about it and when I looked in history in World War II in Germany or in Russia during the Cold War where people would rat out others and get them arrested. And all it took was a pandemic. I mean, think about it. Police get called now by neighbors. If neighbors see a vehicle in front of their neighbor's house that they don't recognize, people will call the police on their neighbors just for that because they think they're breaking the health orders. It, it, it's amazing how fast we can descend into this uh, ratting out each other, uh, even in big society settings. But So the setting is set. We're at verse... Uh, 12, and then it gets to verse 13. So let me read 13, 14, and 15 for you to see how Nebuchadnezzar reacts. It says, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so that these men are brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's kind of funny that it seems that Nebuchadnezzar kind of maybe has a little bit of a soft spot for these three guys. Because originally we're told that if they didn't do it, they would be immediately thrown into the fire. And yet here, Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, has given them a mulligan. Like he says, maybe it's like he's saying, maybe you didn't hear the orchestra play. It's going to play again, and this time when you hear it, you need to, to bow. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. And uh, he ends by saying a very uh, specific sentence, and it's kind of the key sentence for the whole passage. But I, as I was reading this passage, looked at and tried to understand why he would be so mad. Why would Nebuchadnezzar be so furious? Because the text tells us that. And I think there's actually two things at play here. That as I look into, try and look into his mind, I try and think about, put myself in his place. And there's two thoughts that kind of come to me. I think there's two things going on here. And the first is this. I'm not so sure Nebuchadnezzar had never been told no. I don't think when Nebuchadnezzar said something, ordered something, mentioned something that someone stood up to him and said, no, no, we're not going to do that, king. Everyone just did what he said. And in essence, these three guys are standing up and saying no to the king. And what makes it worse is they're, they're his officials. Guys that he put in places of power, he would expect them to obey him. And they're saying no to him. And so I think in part that makes him angry. But I think there's another thing at play as well. I think there's a cultural thing at play, and it's this. Nebuchadnezzar is from a polytheistic culture, which meant that there was a culture that had a ton of gods. There was many gods in their culture. And so for King Nebuchadnezzar to tell his people to bow to this image, it wouldn't be a big deal to him. He wouldn't think it's a big deal for the peop his people because they bowed to a number of different gods. And so it probably doesn't even cross his mind that there would be people who wouldn't want to bow to this image for religious reasons. It would seem foreign to him. It would seem silly to him. In many ways, our culture is very similar thinking. I mean, 
as our culture approaches us as Christians, and as Christians, we enter into our culture and we have discussions about around things like uh, gender identity or uh, uh, sexual orientation or even the right to die. Our perspectives are often so different than our culture that our culture looks at us and wonders, how strange are these people? Like, where do they get at this stuff? Like, how do they not see or how are they not on the same page as the rest of our culture? And they would look at us with these strange eyes and they just can't understand the different point of view that we have. And our culture reacts, I think, in many ways, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar reacted. They get mad because they can't handle that difference of opinion. They don't know where, how to deal with it. And so Nebuchadnezzar basically gives them an ultimatum. Turn or burn. It's as simple as that. Turn or burn, guys. And really, when you read verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think they have a choice. Because he says this, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Like, how are you going to get out of this, you three guys? Like, you only got one choice. Worship the image or die. There's nothing in between. And um, this is a similar position, I think, that everyone in our culture takes. Whether they're polytheistic, whether they're atheistic, whether they're postmodern, whether they're agnostic, whenever someone doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you come to a situation that seems hopeless, they don't see a way out. There's only one or the other thing way of looking at things. And this, in many ways, is the same type of position the devil wants you to believe in. He wants you to believe that no one can save you. He wants you to believe that there is no way out of the things that you're facing. And whether it's a health crisis, whether it's a bad marriage, whether it's an insurmountable debt, whether it's destroyed relationships, he wants you to believe that there is no way out of it. Or if you're overwhelmed with sin in your life, the devil phrases it this way, God would never forgive you. In essence, saying the same thing. There is no way out of your life. You see, the devil wants to create hopelessness in your life. He wants to put you and get you into a state where you have no hope. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar basically is doing to these three guys. He's trying to paint a picture where he puts them in a corner and says, you got no choice. You got to either bow down to my image that I've created or suffer the consequences and dies. And this is how these guys respond, starting in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us and he will... Deliver us from it, from your majesty, and from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldier in his army to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other cloths, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. 
we can see that regardless of the consequences, regardless of the threat, these three men stand their ground. They don't bow to the pressure. They don't give in to King Nebuchadnezzar's demands. It's, it's really a picture of faith being lived out in a very difficult situation. And there's so much going on in these verses. And sometimes I think we forget how much of life that we live requires faith in some capacity or form. I mean, every day we exercise faith. Every time you get on an elevator, you exercise faith. Every time you take, take food out of a restaurant in takeout, you exercise faith. You're exercising the faith that they've cooked it and you're not going to get sick. I mean, even getting up off the couch takes faith. Because you're putting faith that you're in your body, that the message that your brain sends to your muscles is going to get there and that your muscles are going to respond in the way that you want them to respond to lift you off the couch to go get that coffee or that, uh, you know, that dessert that you want to eat. Every day, we do actions that require us living in faith. And sometimes we gloss over that. But what this passage really points out to us, I think, is this. A faith that isn't tested can't be trusted. And so these guys, these three guys, had been growing in their faith as we've seen in the first couple of chapters. And, and God had put them in situations, but there came a point where their faith was going to be tested to the ultimate degree, whether they would turn their back on trusting God or die. And you see that these guys' faith, it's tested and it carries through. And even though Nebuchadnezzar gave them an ultimatum, they lived through their faith, tested, and they passed. Basically, what they said to Nebuchadnezzar was this. We're going to continue trusting in God. And even if he doesn't save us, we're not going to disobey him. I mean, it sounds so confident, doesn't it? It really does. These guys are amazing guys. But if you have a Bible, you might have a footnote that's attached to verse 17. And if you look at the bottom, this is what it says. There is alternate wording to verse 17. In their response, it might read this, if the God whom we serve is able to save us. That little change in how the sentence is structured seems to indicate that there's a little bit more wiggle room in their certainty. Originally, when we read it, it seems like they're very certain. If this is the way it should be translated, it gives us, it moves from a position of certainty into a position of possible divine inaction. And as I was looking at this and as I was studying this, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I can understand why the translators would want to put certainty into the text. Because there is certainty. God can save them. But, as humans, when we come to situations in our life that seem insurmountable, that seem impossible, the truth is, is we often approach those situations wondering if God can save us. And it's not that we have totally discounted that God can. It's kind of wondering if God will save us in this moment, in our situation. It's fine to read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting saved, but will God save me in this moment? It's not that they doubt God's power, but they also don't presume upon God and how he will act in their situation. It's a reminder in many ways that 
any doubts that we have about God don't actually diminish who he is and his power. Just because we feel that God may not step into our situation doesn't change that God could. I'm really amazed as I read this story at how calm these guys are. You have this picture of a furious and out of control Nebuchadnezzar and these three men who are facing death in a very calm manner. How can they be so calm? How can they be so certain? I think there's three things that we need to look at and understand. The first is this, they knew that God is sovereign. That in spite of, in a, in a spite of, of the appearances that, to the contrary, that maybe God isn't in control, they really believed that he was. And we have looked at that in chapter one and chapter two, and now in chapter three, it shows up again. They really truly believe that God is in control of all things. Because this isn't the first time they've faced the possibility of death. They have faced that before and God has seen them through this. And so they have a confidence that God is in control because faith means trusting in God, even when it looks like he isn't there, even when it looks like he won't act. And then secondly, I think they knew that what God required of them in this situation. They knew that they needed to be obedient to his commands and specifically in this situation, the first and second commands of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, where God says, as the first commands, you shall have no other gods before me. And in his second command goes like this, you shall not make yourself for yourself an idol, and you shall not bow down to them or worship them. You see, these guys didn't have to spend time wondering what they should do in this situation, they knew exactly what they needed to do. They couldn't bow down to this image because they knew God's word and they were committing themselves to be obedient to what God had called them to do. I think sometimes we need to be reminded that faith means obeying God no matter how we feel in the moment. And there are often moments where we don't feel like obeying because either it's too hard or it's too big a cost. We are often happy to obey God when we see there's a reward or there's a positive outcome. We're a lot less uh, willing to jump into obedience when there might be a consequence that is painful or a loss in our obedience. And we often ask this question, okay, God, you want me to obey, but what if you don't get me out of this mess? What if you don't step into God? We are tempted in those moments to turn our back to God. We are tempted to doubt him when we don't see him working in our life. And regardless of the outcome, these three guys were going to continue to be obedient, even if it cost them their life. And that's the third thing. They were ready to die for their beliefs. They were prepared for it. They knew that because of their beliefs and in the culture that they lived in, it may ultimately cost them their life. And their courage is remarkable. They don't shrink back from the possibility of death. They don't step into a moment where they're going to betray God. And now you may never be faced with this type of life or death decision because of your belief. You may never have to choose that. But I'll tell you this, that I think that whenever you are faced with a decision to obey God or disobey God, and you step into that obedience, especially when there is a risk or a cost, 
I think you and I display the same type of courage these three men did, even if it's not a life or death situation, because it's about obeying what God has called us to do. And then you see what happens because of their faith and their stepping into obedience. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw, them that the, they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor the hair on their heads was singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And you see the result here of their faith. God did step in to that moment. And Nebuchadnezzar is watching them fall into this furnace and he sees Not three, but four men. And I think he's thinking he's seeing a hallucination or a mirage. And so he yells to his advisors, do you guys see four people in there? And it seems that they agree that they see four. And so he calls out to them and gets them to come out. And scripture tells us that this fourth man looked like the son of the gods. And we're not sure if he was an angel. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's an angel. Others have postulated that he might have been a Christophany, which means that it's an example of a pre-incarnate Christ who appears on earth before he comes in the New Testament. Whatever it is, whoever this person is, um, sometimes it doesn't matter who it is. It's just, it matters that he was there. And the power of this story of chapter 3 of Daniel is this. It's not that the three were rescued from the fiery furnace. As amazing as that is, that's not the power of the story. The power of the story is this, that during their test, they were not alone. That during their test, God was with them. And now, yes, they come out of this firing furnace uh, unsinged, like I don't know how many times I've singed the hair on my hands or arms with, you know, around a candle or lighting something on fire. And these guys come out of this amazingly hot furnace unsinged. And it's an amazing miracle. And sometimes when we are faced with the fiery furnaces of our life, those hard places in life, we cry out to God that he would rescue us and make us unsinged. It's like as if nothing happened. We pray for that. And yet that's not what God always promises. God does not promise to rescue us miraculously out of everything that we face in life. But what he does promise us is this, that he will be with us every step of the way. He will always be with us in those hard moments. And sometimes the most powerful testimony we can have is not some miraculous story about how God miraculously intervened, as powerful as those can be. 
Sometimes the more powerful testimony we have is to share how we went through the hard things, the fiery furnace aspects of our life, and realized and saw that God was with us walking every step of the way. This message really struck with me this week as I was preparing it. Some of you may not know that I have a health scare, and um, uh, the cancer in my body has come back. And so in just over a week, I will be doing another round of radiation, a really heavy dose of radiation. And there have been plenty of moments where I wish God would just heal me. And yet it seems that God wants me to walk this fiery furnace and realize that he is with me. And I'm going to trust, as much as I wish I could go unsinged in this event, I'm going to trust that God will be with me every step of the way. Here's the thing. Even though they were rescued, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ready to die because of their confidence in God. Albert Hubbard was so impressed by the Strauss couple that he wrote about them, you knew how to do three great things. You knew how to live life. Albert Hubbard said this of the Strausses, and he was impressed. You knew how to do three great things. You knew how to live, how to love, and how to die. But he went on to add this. One thing is sure. There are just two respectable ways to die. One is of old age. The other is by accident. All disease is indecent. Suicide is atrocious. But to pass as did Mr. and Mrs. Strauss is glorious. Few have such a privilege. I'm not sure I agree with Mr. Hubbard. I actually think we all have the possibility of knowing how to live and how to die. And we can do this when we put our trust in God, accept his son Jesus, and live a life of obedience to him. We can face anything that comes our way with courage and certainty. And that's how I'm planning to live my life even in the midst of a fiery furnace. And I hope the same can be said of you. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, this story of courage and of faith is such a great reminder to us that when we find certainty in you, when we understand and know that you are in control, when we are willing to step out in obedience, we can trust that you will be with us. I wonder, Lord, if those three men, as they fell in the furnace, had Isaiah 43 go through their mind and the promise that you gave Isaiah. And so, Lord, I want to pray this promise over whoever is listening, whoever is going through a hard time, is facing an impossible situation. I want to pray this prayer over them. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, you will not, they will not sweep over you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord, your God. Amen. Thanks for joining us uh, again this Sunday. 
uh, I really do pray that God has spoken to you in a powerful way through the message or through the rest of our service. Uh, If you have any questions about what we're doing as a church, I encourage you to find your answers on our website at southridgefellowship.ca. And I encourage you to spend some time now uh, engaging with the questions that we're going to post post-service. And really spend some time searching what God would want for you and what God has for you. And remember this, that God always promises to be with you, even if you're in a fiery place. Have a great week. and see, We'll see you back next Sunday.